Okay, Hoffenday, welcome to Fanatsu. Uh, today we have um, two special guests. We have uh, Ed Alvarez and Mr. Dan Onga from American Samoa. Um, but before we get to their conversation, I'd just like to remind everyone, the, um, our viewers, our listeners, to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fanatsu to help us fund this show and continue to provide free content as well as uh, exclusive content and to better improve our quality of the show. Um, so with that, I'll go ahead and turn over to Ed and Dan and they can begin. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. As Larry said, we are here with uh, our Pacific brother from Samoa, Dang Anga. And uh, Dan and I go back a few years. We first met in uh, Nicaragua. Yeah. And uh, we sat next to each other on the C24 regional seminar. And, uh, you know, since then, we, we've talked a lot. Uh, Dan came here for a decolonization conference, as we all know. And, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about the comparisons between Samoa and Guam and also the differences. And so today we will, uh, you know, um, you know, expound on that for you and you can get a sense of uh, how things are in Samoa as compared to Guam. Uh, welcome, Dan. Talo for lava, Ed. You want to start off first talking about... Uh, why you came to Guam and what you've learned and your impressions of Guam. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you uh, for allowing me to come on this program. I, uh, as you have already said, I was here to speak at the decolonization conference and give a perspective from American Samoa. And my impressions of Guam were formed as uh, soon as I landed at the airport because there were people there to greet me and the others who came. And uh, this is not something that happens in the U.S. It happens in Samoa. It happens here. So right away, uh, I had such a, a positive impression of the Chamorro people. And it's been that way ever since I've been here. Um, those aren't uh, gestures that come from off-island. I believe that they originate from us as Pacific people. And it's a very good uh, indication of uh, the culture being alive here uh, from the very proud Chamorro people. Um, so we went up on the first day when the conference started and I, uh, a lot of the talk, a lot of the buzz was about the uh, 2,000 strong march or protest that happened a week or so ago uh, after the ruling that, uh, from what I was told, there was a prayer at the very beginning to uh, ask that, you know, there's nothing, no sudden outbreaks of you know, anyone getting hurt or anything bad happening. So that was very good. I, I even understand there's a little rain that might have... Uh, dissipated the energy, but no, as I, from what I was told, the, the group was walking and other people came in, including Nanchamor, to support uh, the response to the Ninth Circuit ruling. That's right. Uh, the march was a response to the decision from the Ninth Circuit, and it really was all about 
supporting self-determination. It wasn't anything about uh, what nationality you were or where you stood politically. It really was about just saying simply, we support it. it, it it's something that is an inalienable right that we were given. And, uh, and, and since it's God-given, you know, we, we shouldn't be denied Mm-hmm. You know, the the right to go through this process and eventually decolonize from the United States. And, um, you know, the, I, I thought the march was successful. Um, it showed that there was a wide interest in the issue of decolonization. And, um, you know, I I think that spoke volumes. That was a that was a um, watershed moment, if you will for us in our history, the first time we've had 2,000 people come out to a march um, for this. And so I, I, I look at that as another milestone. You know, mm-hmm. When we go back to through the history of decolonization, there, there has been so much done. Um, if, if there wasn't that much done, if there was nothing done in decolonization, there is no way we could have had uh, over a million dollars set aside from the government for this. There is no way we could have increased the registration of Chamorros on the decolonization registry from 3,000 in 2011 to 26,000 by the end of two, wow. 2017. If that was true, we would never have an 800 student high school debate. If that was true that we didn't do anything, there would, there would never have been a decolonization debate in last year's gubernatorial election. I can go on and on with the things that have been done. But we're not going to be labor at two point. I just wanted to point out some very major milestones, the march, this conference, and what I said previously to show that, yes, there has been a lot of done. There has been a lot done on this, and uh, there's going to, we're going to continue. Uh, it's not by any means dead, you know. And, you know, that's something Dan and I talked about in Nicaragua was, you know, our struggles with this, our struggles with, with um you know, our colonizer and dealing with them on many different levels. And um, we're in a, I would say, precarious position because, you know, the people we have to deal with are the very same people that deal with us in ways that we know are unfair. So therein lies the struggle. Um, Dan, when we were speaking about uh, Samoa, your your perspective was a little bit different than our reality here. I'd like you to expound more on the way the Samoan view the United States and everything from its uh, its immigration to its uh, to its um, uh, ec- economic exclusivity zone and so forth. Can you explain? Okay. You know what what Samoa has. Well, I'll I'll start with uh, the U.S. citizenship case, and then move on to how that's connected to the case. Uh, of defining native inhabitants of Guam. And in the 1950s, after World War II, uh, Guam proposed an organic act that included the protection of Chamorro lands, language, and culture. It was sent to the U.S. Congress, and those clauses were removed by the U.S. Congress as un-American, being considered un-American. They sent back the organic act and saying, okay, you are now U.S. citizens. When the Samoan leadership heard about this, they said, well, if that's what an organic act is, 
we don't want to have anything to do with an organic act from now until the end of time. And that's why we're still in unorganized territory without an organic act that sets up our government. So we took a different route. And in 1960, there was a constitutional convention. And our constitution is approved by the Secretary of Interior. And you can, you can uh, look at that in a lot of different ways. But what happened was, was there is a, a policy protective clause in our constitution that forbids the alienation of lands and protects Samoan lands and Samoan language and the way of life. And that's what we stand on. There's also deed of session, but uh, I, if we have time, we can also uh, talk about that. So we have uh, lands in American Samoa that protect lands for the Samoan people. Legal scholars have called this uh, constitutionally repugnant, uh, that there's no more clear violation of the Equal Protection Clause, and have called this an invidious classification of race. Ed, what I, what I said at the conference was that, so what do we as, as Native peoples do? And the argument that I and many others have made is, is basically this. When, when the Europeans came to the Samoan Islands and when the Spanish came to Juan, Guahan, they didn't find an empty space. These were not uninhabited islands. When they came here, it wasn't, there wasn't just a bunch of unkempt, unclean savages walking around aimlessly scrounging for food. When they came, there were people here, there were families here, there were villages here. And I believe that there was the Chamorro people and the Samoan people, they knew love, they knew kindness, and they knew respect. And they fully understood the connection to the land and the water and the air. And they had a spiritual consciousness that you can see in your poetry and in your music and in your dance, and especially, I believe, in your architecture. I am so amazed by the latte stones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere else in the Pacific that uses stones for the post of their house. And the more I learned how they had to quarry those stones from the southern part of Guam to bring them up here and to raise the stones so high, I mean, I've been told they're even two, three stories high, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is equal to what uh, they did at Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. But the, the biggest difference, though, is they don't know who did the stones at Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. We know that the Chamorro people and your, your ancestors yeah. built these latte stones. And I, I'm just, I find that so amazing. Yes. Oh, man, great points. Thank, thank you, Dan. You know, and to, to add on to that, um, what was what Dan was saying about people were here, and it wasn't it wasn't uh, you know it, it wasn't what was really portrayed by the people who came here and wrote about Guam. It you know I mean history is perspective, right? It, it it just depends on who's writing it. But a lot of the things that we know about Samoa and Guam, we we, we are in common with them. You know we, you know and and the one thing that Dan talked about that I was really really. Um, impressed about was that when the organic that came out, he was saying that the Samoan people didn't know all the intricacies or the complexities of the act or anything else, but they knew one thing. They knew 
it was something they didn't want. And that's, that's insightful for your people to, at that time, to know that, you know what, whatever it sounds like, it's, it's not, it doesn't sound like anything we want. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you guys that, that the roles weren't reversed, you know, that it was us first. And, you know, just, just for history's sake, the Organic Act really was passed by Congress uh, really to ensure that Guam never became a state. That was really one of the undermining uh, points that um, was, was, was shared around in Congress. And, of course, you know, people know that our delegation that went over there didn't, they didn't have an audience with any of these congressional people. They simply said, what did you want? And we told them what we thought we wanted. And they said, no, we're not going to get this, but you'll get this, this, and this. And so, you know, once again, in history, we are at a compromise, you know, and, and it's the same thing as war reparations. Once again, we are at a compromise. Everyone in the war, whether it was the Palauans, the FSM, the Okinawans, the Filipinos, the American Japanese, and even the uh, recently the Iran, Iran hostages all got raw reparations. And none of them had to pay for it out of their own pocket. We're the only ones who had to pay for it with our own money. It's the same thing, you know, with land. Uh, this is the only place you can come in the Pacific and actually own land. You can't go to Korea, China, Taiwan, Philippines, you can't go any of those places and own land. This is the only place where anyone can own land. And that's just wrong. That's just wrong because it doesn't fit with the region we're in. It doesn't fit with the mindset of our peoples throughout this region. And so that's why, you know, getting back to, to Samoa, I'm happy you guys protect your lands and your language and, you know, your way of life. But I would caution you that uh, just because they're not there now, People aren't there. The U.S. isn't there. Other major powers, you know, they're coming at some point, right? We talked about that well, soon, right? You know, we're U.S. territory, just like Guam. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, U.S. laws apply, mm -hmm. and the Constitution of the United States is the highest law in the land. That's what the Supremacy Clause says. And in our Constitution, it says that our legislature cannot pass laws inconsistent with the laws of the United States and the treaties that the United States are engaged in. So uh, from a, from a, from through the prism of uh, decolonization and self-determination, the unilateral authority of Congress is still present. It still applies. And the political power imbalance that exists between uh, the administering authority and the non-self-governing territory still exists. But I, I wanted to go back to those uh, men back in the 1950s, and I, I talked about how they were barefoot. They, they, the highest uh, grade level at the time was the ninth grade. At the time, uh, many of them had probably never been off island. They weren't exposed to the big world, but I believe that they knew certain things, and I, I think of it as self-evident truths. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, we know about the famous self-evident truth in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. But the Samoans, I believe, knew these self-evident truths. They weren't written down in books. It was passed on from generation to generation. And, and it's that these islands, the Samoan islands, are our home, that 
we inherited them from our ancestors, that we have a way of life and we have a right to survive and we have a right to make fundamental decisions that impact our way of life and that our greatest hope is that the Samoan way of life live into the future. And I don't mean uh, in a nostalgic way or in a, in a way that never changes. I mean a, a culture that's connected to the land. When I mean culture, uh, and we have long discussions about what Samoan culture is. At one point, uh, uh, I tried to strip it down. It says, culture is taking care of your parents. But, you know, my parents have passed on, and now the culture I'm talking about is the one that I'm going to pass on to my children and grandchildren and to yours as well, mm -hmm. Ed. But we are faced with the application of the United States Constitution, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment equal protection of laws for all U.S. citizens, and the amendment that says you can't discriminate in voting. Mm -hmm. So how does that work out in an American Samoa? And there is, there is a court case uh, to, uh, for the courts to grant U.S. citizenship by birth to people born in American Samoa. Right now, when you're born in American Samoa, you're born a U.S. national. And most of the time, you don't even notice the difference. Uh, we're also eligible for student financial aid and Medicaid and many of the programs. We use U.S. passports. We travel freely. Uh, you can find work. There are, there are instances, though, that have caused a few people, and it's their right to go to court to, to say that they want U.S. citizenship by birth in American Samoa. Why wouldn't the people of American Samoa want U.S. citizenship. After all, millions of people around the world would love to have mm -hmm. become a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. We see that all over the world. Mm -hmm. And the main reason why is we believe that if you apply the 14th Amendment in full force, it will be a threat to our way of life. Because if we are all born U.S. citizens, then everyone should have equal protection under the law. Now, as, as you know very well, that's what the law says, but it's not being applied in Guam. Mm -hmm. Because you are born U.S. citizens, mm -hmm. but you can't vote for the U.S. Mm -hmm. So where is this? Yeah. Where is this? Mm -hmm. For us, though, it, it, it's something that probably won't happen today or next week. Mm -hmm. But in a generation, if everyone has the same right to our lands... In a generation, hmm. yeah, you know, we could lose it all. And some people will say, Dan, don't worry about it. There are enough protections. Well, there are enough protections because we're U.S. nationals and we have what's called this deliberate distance. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a Department of Justice memo from 1984 says we are legally isolated mm -hmm. because we're not U.S. citizens. We don't have an organic act. We don't have federal courts and we control our own customs and immigration. Mm -hmm. So there is this legal distance, uh, whatever you call it, whether we're legal, legally isolated mm -hmm. or whether the distance is deliberate, there is this gap mm -hmm. that's a kind of protection for us. Mm -hmm. Of course, people say, Dan, they can do whatever they want. Okay, they can do whatever what they want. But right now, this is the way it stands. Mm -hmm. And we could go down this slippery slope of being U.S. citizens and then what will happen next? Mm -hmm. And when we look at what happened to the Native Americans, when we look at it, what's happened to the Native Hawaiians, 
where we look at what's happening to the Chamor people of Guam, I think that we have cause for worry. Okay? Mm-hmm. We, have, we need to be concerned. And I think right now, the ruling by the Ninth District that says the definition of native inhabitants of Guam is an impermissible racial classification, mm-hmm. I think that's something that concerns us as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, good point. Great point. Um, yes, you know, when we talk about the 15th Amendment, it's really the Voting Act's, mm-hmm. the voting Act's law. And, you know, a lot of times in history especially in the courts, they get confused with the intent of the law. As we know, the intent of the 15th Amendment was really, really focused on voting in the southern states. There's many, many examples of what they were doing, what the white people were doing to the black people in in the south to stop them from voting. For example, they would say, okay, how many judges are there in Alabama? And, you know, if someone knew the answer, then the next question was, name them all. You know, come on, that's unrealistic. The guy's not going to know all 69. You watch the movie Selma, Selma or something. that's yeah. right, right? And, you know, that was, that was the, taxes they were, the tactics they were using. It's just so different from this case that we talk about with voting rights. This 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 case with the Davis case is is not about what I just explained. Uh, this this act of decolonization and this journey is a restorative justice measure, as I'll keep reiterating, for all the sufferances and injustices that our colonizers, whether it was Japan, whether it was the United States or Spain, it, it, this is restorative justice for all those injustices that were, you know, in were imposed upon us. That's what this is about. This is not about your rights as a voter. But, you know, legal legalese and legal arguments craftily hooked that in there and the court bought it. But any other court in the world, the International Court of Justice, any other world court would throw that out in a minute. Ed, you know, to prepare for Guam in the time that I came here, I started reading more about... Uh, the Indian Commerce Clause and uh, what was going on. And, and so I'd like to offer something that's kind of a philosophical view um, <clears throat> because how do we look at this? And uh, if you go back to the founding of the nation, there were two very important things that happened. One of them we can call the original sin of America mm-hmm. and the other the mother of all injustices. And uh, they're like two parallel narratives. And the original sin of America was the human bondage of Africans, slavery. And so there, were, there, were, there was a whole narrative that came out of that. The mother of all injustices was the genocide of the Native Americans and everything else that happened. Mm-hmm. The 14th and 15th Amendment, and I think you touched on it, came out of this narrative of slavery. 13th Amendment banned slavery. 14th Amendment gave everyone U.S. citizenship and the equal protection of laws. And the 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution said you can't discriminate when you're voting. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're looking at. And I, and I know you, believe in equality, the equality of man. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, especially in this day and age when white supremacists are marching into the mainstream with torches mm -hmm. and guns, mm -hmm. when there are detention centers at the U.S. borders, mm -hmm. when there's uh, uh, actions to, to restrict voting to mar that marginalizes minorities, uh, including gerrymandering of districts, and even you look at the, the incarceration rates. I mean, the U.S. has more people in prison than any country in the world, and most and a and a inordinate percentage of them are people of color. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think it's right when Martin Luther King said we shouldn't be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. I strongly believe in that. Okay. But we're also looking at at what happened because of how the Native Americans were treated. And I surely don't have to talk about that mm -hmm. so much. So we need to ask ourselves, in which narrative do the native people of the Samoan Islands and the native people of Guam fall into? Mm. And I believe we fall into this other narrative as native peoples. We, should we are a unique people. We are in a unique situation. And we need to fight for that. Yeah. We need to fight for that. Somehow... Uh, applying the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment is what's called impractical and anomalous. This is in the U.S. insular cases. Mm -hmm. It's difficult because you're, you're U.S. citizens. You have this organic act with the equal uh, opportunity clause. Mm -hmm. We're not U.S. citizens. Right. But now that these two things are linked, mm -hmm. uh, it's very concerning to us. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how... You are U.S. nationals. We are, we are U.S. citizens, but really we're jurisdictional. We're not full U.S. citizens. We're jurisdictional. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting, though, though, how in Samoa you can control your customs and in, 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 in immigration, but we can't do that here. You can protect your lands, your way of life, but we can't do that here. I know it's harder. It's harder it, to yeah, well, it's being challenged now with this Chamorro land trusting and the guy, you know, and, and in Saipan, they challenged it as well, you know, and I, I like that, that we are unique. And because we are unique, we should be treated uniquely, right? I mean, An I, exception I think to the rule, so yeah, to speak. Right, because, because, because we already had a way mm -hmm. in Samoa and Guam, Guam way before anyone came here. Ed, let me say this. I'm really, I'm re I guess the word is impressed, but it is, it is a nice thing to see. Uh, Guam's development is more modern. Their infrastructure is, is more developed. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked up your GDP today. It's, mm -hmm. it's something like 5.8 billion. Yeah, yeah. Ours is about 300 something million. Yeah, yeah. So there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, that that's very impressive to see, but mm -hmm. but I, I I'm sorry to say, or it's hard to say, the the degree of militarization here is also uh, something that that's, you know we can look at, and and then I've been told about uh, bulldozing that's happened, yes, in the northern yeah. part of Guam, and mm -hmm. so you know you're faced with serious challenges, and the the location, the strategic location of Guam closer to Japan and North Korea and China makes Guam uh, uh, the strategic value to the U.S. I mean, it was Robert Underwood said, it's our loyalty doesn't count. It's, it's our use to the U.S. 
So that's that's some there's those are some hard truths. Hard truths yeah. to to handle. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely it is. And um, I think though that um, just to move on further, I just I just find it uh, unfair that you know certain things apply to certain to territories and certain things do not apply. They don't treat the territories all equal. And that 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 to me is a is a lawsuit in itself, you know, because I think the Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands, they're not subjected to the Jones Act, right. and that's because of the cruise line industry, right? And then you know, you guys are able to no, we're we're subject to the no, Jones no, no, Act. but you're able to control your own customs and immigration. Mm-hmm. Well, Guam has tried to get it back, right? We never had control of it. Yeah, but I I read I read about yeah, we never had contr- we never had control in the first place. Mm. since ever since you know immigration and customs never it was under the navy and it was under the yeah okay well that's that's one of the 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 things colonizers do yeah they get control of immigration and it's called artificial populating of the territory right then your demographics change everything changes yeah Uh, right so and you know this was all this was all in a report i don't know if you ever heard of the solemn report I've heard of it. I but think you told me about it. I told it. you about yeah. it. And, you know, you, you look at that thing. Well, I read, I read the true copy. Yeah. Send me a copy of that. I will. And, okay. well, I don't have the true one, but I ha- oh. there is the redacted one you can get on the Internet. But, Redact- you know, even the redacted one, the ones that all the black lines, yeah. and all the nitty-gritties crossed Gosh. out, they, even that, you know, shows the intent. Well, try to get that declassified. That's something you could. Well, it is. It is. That's why it's on the Internet. Oh, okay. But, you know, even that, as, as watered down as that document mm-hmm. is now, it still shows the intent mm. to make Guam and Micronesia and, and a lot of other places dependent on well, the United well, States. Well, so, Ed, you know, we also talked about hope and mm-hmm. how, how do you, what's, where do we go from here? Do you want to talk about that or? Yeah, you know, I think, I think as long as we continue this momentum, I think now, you know, with the military buildup and with some of the actions that the military has, you know, has demonstrated, you know, like the unwillingness to pause the, the military buildup to do proper archaeological investigation and study and documenting. And, you know, I, th- I think this will spurn on us people. And I think the more and more we get this message out that life on Guam may seem may seem nice, it may seem pleasant. I think people more and more are realizing that this way of life is disappearing. And on an earlier podcast, I mentioned this uh, to the tune of homelessness, people on the, you know, the, the islands of the traffic intersections asking for money. We never had that. We never had 1,500, 2,000 homeless. Our fiestas are disappearing in the, in the villages. Nobody, rarely you see fiestas now. Not like 30 years ago when everybody had one, right? What's a fiesta for my sake? Uh, you know, every village has a patron saint in, in, in our, you know, our Catholic religion. So every year there's supposed to be a celebration for that saint. And I remember when I came to Guam in 1971, every house in my village had one. And, and you're supposed to, you don't need to be invited. You go there and they're insulted if you didn't show up. You go there, you eat a little bit, they give you food, you go to the next one and the next mm. one and the next one. But now, you don't see them. Even in the South where these were very, 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 you know, time-honored, 
it, it's come down to economics. It's just too expensive to put one on right. now. And the fact that the resources we used to have, the natural resources, they're not there anymore. So, you know, we can't, we can't provide because we don't have those natural resources, you know, so. Ed, can we get to a cut to the chase kind of topic? Sure. Uh, and considering the different options, one of them, independence, the other statehood, Water Free Association. And, and uh, I, I worked for the land grant program at the at our community college. We don't have a university uh, like you do, but uh, food security is one of our priority items. And if you consider independence, how are you going to build food security? Mm. I mean, I've been... Uh, at the conference, someone said something like uh, 50,000 people are on Food out stands. of the total population, yeah. and probably like American Samoa, mm -hmm. a good 80, 85, 90% of the food is imported. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a legitimate issue mm -hmm. for people to think about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you can't just simply say, okay, everyone go back to the land, go back fishing, mm -hmm. uh, because the population is far greater than it was when you were fishing-based and agricultural-based economy. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's really uh, one issue because, you know, uh, I, I had a chance to talk to uh, the Chamorro Studies students the other night, and, and I was telling them, you know, if I see someone at the bus stop that tells me he probably doesn't have a car, and, and I, I, I often wonder, so how do I talk to that person about self-determination? Or if I see people waiting for their medicine at the pharmacy, old people especially, how do I talk to them about self-determination when they're more concerned about, you know, how do I get my medicine? And, and I think food security is something that surely we need to somehow uh, assure people that that's something that can be addressed if we oh. choose to take a different direction. How, how would yeah. you respond to that? Oh, I would respond to that uh, by relating it to the current, the current uh, Trans-Pacific Pact that would, would allow or is going to allow other countries and other nations to, you know, be able to ship their goods to places that they can't now. Uh, Guam, when we were supposed to be on that, Trump pulled us out. But, uh, you know, if we became freely associated or independent, those routes for shipping would not only be restricted to U.S. flagships. We could now get direct shipping from, let's say, Japan, let's say, Indonesia, Malaysia, you know, there'd be a whole bunch of routes that would open up that would be able to provide goods and commodities to Guam directly, as opposed to indirectly now by way of the Jones Act. So that's one. Um, I, I do believe there's going to be like, like uh, I think it was Joe Bradley who was saying that there'll be a reduction, right? In, in, a in, disruption. A disruption in, in, in life on Guam. But, you know, I, I don't think we should fear it. It's, it, it's, it's, it's synonymous with, with just change, you know. Uh, but I think that we we know enough. We have enough acumen and business knowledge to, to have a short curve and and tweak, tweak the the the, the issues such that very soon it'll be working for us. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel. I, I don't think I don't think we don't. I think we have enough people on this island, uh, who who would know better or know how to steer in the right direction and and opening up shipping shipping lines is one way that food security. Would be would be uh, would be successful because, I mean, the studies that I read would have said have indicated that if we were part of the Trans-Pacific Pact, our our food prices would drop by twenty to thirty percent. 
Well, every government has to generate revenues. How about how? What ideas mm-hmm. do you have for? Oh, okay. I would definitely, uh, you know, there, there would have to be some arrangement with the basis. I, I think so. If not, there's there's so many other ways we can get money. The flyover from the all the airlines that fly over our space. That's one. Uh, you know, there'll be some kind of a gratuity that corporations who ship their money off island and don't circulate it on Guam. I think they should be, you know, taxed. I think that, uh, you know, it's it's not any different than England and France. If you're a corporation, a foreign corporation doing business in England and France, and you want to take your profit and and ship it back to your headquarters in Durango, Colorado, fine. But they're gonna they're gonna tax you. you, you it doesn't go out for free. So you know there's gonna be a disruption in services, a disruption in money, but there'll also be new things developing to make up for that. So you have an optimistic view of how economic development can happen. And well, I've seen it work. I've seen it work. You know, I've seen Singapore. You know, how it's grown in the last 20, 30 years from a very rural kind of economy to a very capitalistic, you know, I've seen the Philippines. So so that's one necessary component of considering a a political relationship, a different one. But there's another one I'd like to bring Mm -hmm. up. That's okay. Mm -hmm. We had a veto override referendum in American Samoa. It was the fifth time we had this. Uh, As you know, a veto override is where a legislature... Well, a governor can not pass a law, and the legislature with a two-thirds vote can override it. Right, got it. So in your law, once the, once the legislature, two-thirds of each house, mm-hmm. votes to override the governor's veto, mm-hmm. it becomes law. That's right. In American Samoa, the Secretary of Interior still has a role in our veto override process. And so we have been trying to change that. And uh, one of the reasons I'm, I'm sad to admit is that it, it kind of has to do with more trust in the Secretary of Interior than in our own local leadership. Yeah. So with a, what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say is, mm-hmm. because I believe this also applies to Guam, mm-hmm. self-determination is really hard if people don't also trust in their government. Absolutely. And I, I really think that in order for this to work uh, expediently and efficiently, people from outside the government have to be the ones to take this role. Because people inside the government, people who are in the politics, tend to get insulated, tend to get a mindset that not all the time includes other people and everyone, but people from outside that, that insulation tend to think holistically, tend to think of the good of the majority. In other words, they're not bean counters. They're not vote counters. Well, how many, you know, they don't say, well, how many votes am I going to get if I go this way? How many am I going to lose? People in the business sector, people in, 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 out of the insulation, on the whole, have a, better, have a better probability of saying, well, this is what we think is the best. It may not be the best politically, but it, it is the best for the people. You know? So I think, I think that that's the way it has to go. But again, there, there are these components to yeah. the process. That, yeah. And um, I, I, in the time that we have left, I feel like I'm becoming the interviewer now. That's right? okay. Yeah. It's all right, man. It's all right. You're not colonizing me, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is the whole educational system piece. But well, in the interest of time, I think I'd like to get to this narrative of hope and possibility. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you keep up your hopes? And I was, I was talking to Dr. Bivakwa about this. And uh, 
when the 2009 tsunami devastated Samoa, you know, people in the Pacific, we know hurricanes. Oh, every year you either have a hurricane or there's the fear of one happening. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we're resilient. Mm-hmm. We know how to, we live with it, we deal with it. And especially here in Guam, I see these concrete roofs. So you guys have really, uh, 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 what do you call it, gotten ready for this. Mm-hmm. But in 2009, we, were, we had an earthquake, not a, yes, a very strong earthquake. And then we had a tsunami. And we were not ready for that. And, and meteorologists from around the world were coming to American Samoa to study what had happened. And uh, anthropologists also came down. Which I was found, you know, like I asked the lady, you know, so what are you doing here? It's peculiar. I expected meteorologists, uh, but not anthropologists. Mm-hmm. She, she told me one of one of the things that happened to American Samoa was that it had been such a long time since there had been a tsunami. Because I don't know anybody who remembered a tsunami. Mm-hmm. Says that you you forgot, you lost the institutional memory of how to deal with a tsunami not only physically, but emotionally and psych- psychologically, because it really was, was hard on us. And she said, you forgot to tell the stories of what, hap- mm. of what happened before, because that's how you pass on the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, what I shared with, with Michael was, you know, you guys had this ruling, but what you, the way you keep up your hopes is to tell the stories. Yeah. Tell the story of what's, what's happened. And, uh, and, and maybe it might not seem like much, but, you know, how do you keep up your hopes anyway? You know, you, you, you come together, and, and that's what the march was mm-hmm. too, I think, uh, people yeah. coming together bound in, in courage because if you're by yourself, it's easy to lose hope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that self-determination takes place in many different contexts. Farmers and fishermen are self-reliant people. Mm-hmm. And, and maintaining that self-reliance is an important part of self-determination. We're not all going to become legal scholars and activists, but in your own walk of life, what you do to build self-determination and self-reliance, I think, is important. Uh, same thing with artists and musicians, because artists are about imagination and creativity and, and originality. But they're also self-defining. They're defining our identity and mm-hmm. who we are mm-hmm. in very important ways. Mm-hmm. Because when you, when you build your nation, it's not enough. H.H. Uh, H. Worland talked about it's not enough to have the hardware of your nation, mm-hmm. the laws and the constitutions and the voting. You also need the software. Mm-hmm. You need to build the skills of all your people. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think that's one way to, to think about all of this, mm-hmm. uh, Ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't have my what I wrote down in front of me, but what what I think I said is that there will be many truths in our relationship and destiny with the United States, but we can't afford and we can't allow the political process to be solely dictated by others. We can't allow the political process to be taken completely out of our hands, mm-hmm. and it's a struggle that we can't afford to lose. We can't afford to lose that struggle because future generations depend on it. But I can say that the people in Samoa are people of great faith, and we say Samoa Muamule Tua, and thank you very much, Ed, for allowing me to come and speak.
today. Wow, man, that was well said. <laughs> I think we're signing out. Anyway, that's it for today. And I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a, a little bit about uh, Samoa and Guam and our history and our parallels and our differences. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.